Good morning. So everybody is alert, I can tell from camp, that's good, because we're talking about the qualifications of elders and deacons, which is, as everyone knows, the most thrilling subject that you could come and hear about on a Sunday morning. Uh, we are going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 1 through 13, so if you go ahead and start finding that, getting open to there, we'll be there in just a moment. When I was growing up, I have, uh, I still have, a sister that's about two years older than me, I have a cousin that's about a year older than me. And during summer, you know, we'd be off from school, and so we'd be playing together and, and doing stuff, and it, it could be riding our bikes. But uh, one of the things we really liked to do was, you know, you'd play pretend and use your imagination. And uh, my sister, again, two years older than me, there was a game that she liked to play a lot. She liked to play school, <laughs> which baffled me. Like, they've let us free, you know? Why do you want to pretend that you're back? But... The reason why she enjoyed playing it was, okay, she's the oldest. What role in the game do you think she played? She was the teacher, right? And so she got to give the orders. She got to give the homework and the assignments. And uh, I'll, I'll just tell you, I was a really good kid in school. I mean, I was a really good kid in school. I never got in trouble. And that wasn't because I was just naturally a very good person. It was because I was absolutely terrified of my parents and getting in trouble. I just didn't, didn't want to go there. didn't want to go there. And so at school, I never really got in significant trouble uh, any more than kind of everybody else. But in pretend school, I was the most rebellious, terrible student that there has probably ever been. I hated it. I hated having to pretend that I was in school and having to do what my sister told me. So I got F's on all my assignments. I got demerits and detention constantly in pretend school. And I just loathed it with every fiber of my being. And as we think about leadership, sometimes we, we think about games like that, or we think about, you know, Simon Says, or Follow the Leader, and those are really fun if you're in charge. It's not as much fun if you're not in charge. So when it comes to church, we can bring that kind of mindset in with us as well of, okay, if I get to be the one in charge, then leadership is fine, but if we're talking about me following somebody else, well, maybe I'm not as on board. But let me give you another scenario, and that is, imagine that you're about to take a journey through the Amazon rainforest, uh, which I don't know everybody in here, but that's none of us have probably done that. Uh, maybe you have, but most of us probably have not done that. We're not experts on the geography of the Amazon rainforest. So you're getting ready, you're getting all your gear together, and you're about to head in, and there's a guy who comes up and says, hey, I know the way through. I know a safe path that we can go through. We can avoid all of the jaguars and snakes and bugs the size of your Volkswagen. And we can avoid all of that and I can get you safely through to the other side. You just have to do what I, what I tell you. You have to follow me. Well, I don't know about you, but as much as I hated playing school as a kid, I'm following that dude. Like, I'm going to have no problem whatsoever submitting to that leadership and going, you lead the way, man. I'm not going to go out here and be Mr. Bold individual who thinks he's going to trek this thing on his own. And if we realize that uh, church, what we're doing, this spiritual life that we're in, the Bible talks about it like it's warfare. That we're in a spiritual war between light and darkness. That we're at war with the sin within ourselves. That the dangers are on the right hand and on the left. It makes sense that God would institute in his church godly leadership. Godly qualified men who can lead us through those things. And so while this may seem like a bit of an academic discussion of qualifications for elders and deacons, I mean, how does that play a part in my everyday life? Listen, if you care at all about your joy, you should care about who gets to be an elder and who gets to be a deacon. 
if you care about your happiness and flourishing as a Christian, it matters a great deal who gets to be an elder and who gets to be a deacon. Because as we'll see, this is God's instituted means. This isn't Paul dreaming these things up. This is God through Paul saying, here's what I want for my church. And Jesus, who lays his life down for the church, anything he does for that church, you can guarantee comes from a heart of love. Comes from a heart that says, I want what's best for my people. And so if this is what Jesus puts in place for his church, well, then we realize that's what's best for the church. That's what's best for us as individuals and what's best for us as a group of people. So with all that said, 1 Timothy chapter 3, let's read. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So remember where we're at in 1 Timothy. Paul's given this charge to young Pastor Timothy to defend the faith, to contend for the truth of the gospel against the false teachers who were coming in and spreading uh, lies and false teaching. Uh, we saw that Paul uses himself as an example of the transformed life that Jesus creates then we saw that Paul commands that we pray for all people because God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We looked at the roles of men and women within the life of the church. And then Paul slides right into this discussion of leadership because it makes sense if men and women are going to be learning and teaching and submitting, then who are they submitting to and what's, what determines who gets to be in those roles? So Paul says, if anyone aspires to this office, it's a noble task. It's an honorable work that he desires to do. Therefore, let's talk about what they have to be. So this morning, as we look at this, uh, I want to make just three points. And these three points answer three questions. Number one, what do elders do? Number two, what must elders be? And number three, why are elders important? So we're going to look at what elders do. Then we're going to look at what they have to be, look at these qualifications, and then spend some time at the end thinking again, why does this matter? Why does this matter for our joy as Christians? Why does this matter for the strength of this church? Why does this matter for our role in the Great Commission? And so, number one, what do elders do? So what elders do, the primary task of the elder is to teach the Bible. So I'm getting that from verse 2, where he says that the elder must be able to teach. Paul has told Timothy repeatedly to give himself to teaching. He's going to do it again. We're going to see in a couple weeks in chapter 4, in verses 11, in verse 13, and in verse 16 of chapter 4. 
Also, if you go back to when deacons were first uh, instituted in the church, if you go to Acts chapter 6 and read about what was happening that created this need for uh, these, these deacons to come about, is there was a situation where uh, widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food. So there were two groups of widows, and it was kind of a cultural thing as well, but also a needs thing, and it was getting out of control, and the apostles gathered everybody together and said, hey, we, uh, we can't take care of this and still give ourselves to preaching and teaching, and so uh, appoint seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit who can do this work, and we will give ourselves to the ministry of the Word and prayer. So there are all kind of issues playing a role in there, but notice what Peter says is that we need this to happen in order that we can give ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. It was so important for Peter and the other apostles who were really like the pastors of the church in Jerusalem. It was so important for them to be giving themselves to this ministry of the word, to teaching and preaching, that they put other men in place to take care of this other need, which was a real need. It was important. It needed to be met. But the most important thing that had to happen in the church was the teaching and the preaching of God's word. So that is the task of the elder. Uh, what this means is that the elder is not just a man of authority, but the elder is a man under authority. He's under the authority of this book. Elders do not come together and just dream up plans and schemes and things they like to do. They don't just use their imaginations and go, hey, what would we like to see? Or what, what are other people doing that's working? No, elders are to be men who are underneath the authority of this book who give themselves to studying it, give themselves to learning it, to obeying it, and to teaching it. Which means that anytime time one of your pastors gets up and, and presents you something from God's Word, it is as authoritative as if God himself were standing here giving that Word. Which does a couple of things. It really should humble pastors. That when we get up and say, thus saith the Lord, there's a tremendous amount at stake there. And for you, as a person who's listening, this is more than just, you know, a Sunday pep talk. You're coming to hear from the God of the universe. And his message is being delivered through your pastors. We begin to see why this is so important and so vital. So if the pastor says it, it's as if it's coming from God. It has the same authority as if Jesus himself were standing here giving it. So uh, elders, they're not leadership gurus. They're not life coaches or psychiatrists. They're to be men of the book, men of the word, who give themselves to the preaching and teaching of this book. This shows you as well from Acts chapter 6 and then just using our, our godly uh, sense that deacons are important as well. Not because they're teaching. Their role is not to teach, but because they are safeguarding the elders' ability to do these tasks. They're meeting those other needs, those real, physical, tangible needs, whether it's financial or maintenance or, or whatever the case may be. They're taking care of those issues in order that the pastors can give themselves to this ministry of the word. And so the health of a church is at stake, that the elders can give themselves to this work and that the deacons are holding them up underneath that. So elders are shepherds. They are overseers. Uh, all those words are interchangeable in the New Testament. If you have an overseer, an elder, a pastor, if you see those words, they're all talking about the same office and role. Those aren't three different things. Uh, and they're to shepherd the flock, shepherd the congregation that God's given them with the word of God as they are underneath the authority of King Jesus as he's given it through his word. So that's what elders do. Number two, what elders are. This is what Paul is giving most of his attention to here in 1 Timothy 3. Now, as you read through these qualifications, what you may have noticed is that there's nothing, you know, tremendously unusual about it, right? 
most of these things sound like, well, yeah, I, I guess he should be that. There's nothing in here like he needs to be able to do a triple backflip or create fire, right? He, he, doesn't, he must have super strength and no, these aren't superheroes. These are, there's not any sort of miraculous even ability that's mentioned here. And as someone has pointed out, all of these qualities, except for the ability to teach, are elsewhere commanded of all Christians, men and women, in the New Testament. So it's not like these guys are in a different class. It's not as if they are held to a different standard. It's just that Paul says they need to be meeting these standards. So as we look at these, how can we organize these qualifications? And I think we can organize them into really four uh, very simple categories. The first is they have to have patterns of godly behavior. Right? So observable, outward patterns of godly behavior. And the reason this is important is because uh, pastors can't be hypocrites that are getting up and saying one thing and they're doing a different, a different thing. They're negating everything they're teaching by what their lives are saying. Uh, the eldership is a do-as-I-say-as-you-watch-what-I-do kind of position. And so they have to have observable patterns that the gospel has really taken root in their hearts and transformed them and brought about change in their lives. So as we look through these qualities, just walk through them really quickly. Uh, above reproach, okay, so we can't be reproachable. That just that, that makes sense. Husband of one wife. Now, some of you may have different translations, and different translations uh, choose to, to, to translate this Greek phrase different ways. Literally, what it says is a one-woman man. That's all it says. I don't know of any translations that actually puts that, but that's all it says. And so what we believe that means is that, number one, it's faithfulness. A one-woman man is a faithful husband. He's devoted to his wife. Secondly, we believe that that also means that this excludes divorce. Now, I will just say that there are godly uh, pastors at other churches who are trying to submit themselves to the Bible who differ on this. But this is where we have landed. And so that's, that's what we hold to, that it's faithfulness, and it excludes those who have been divorced. Moving on, it says sober-minded. This is not just talking about alcohol, but this is a man who can think seriously. And I think if Paul was to uh, maybe speak in our time, he would say, the guy can't be a goofball, right? Like, he needs to be able to, to settle down and be serious, because the care of God's church is a very serious matter. And if you have a guy who can never uh, calm down and turn off the jokes long enough to deal with a serious issue, he may not be there maturity-wise to be an elder. He has to be self-controlled, has to have uh, himself under control in just very simple ways. Like he's not just flying off the handle at any, any moment. Respectable, uh, hospitable. This word literally means a lover of strangers. A hospitable person is a lover of strangers. So, yes, it's, it is that you have people over to your home and, and you're friendly to people, but it's not just, well, I have my friends over once a month and so I'm hospitable. It's also that, is this a person who's reaching out to the people on the outside and trying to bring them in? Is this, is this a man who's going over to the person that's standing on the wall and not talking to anybody and says, hey, you know, I, I'm David, who are you? And uh, do you have anybody to go to lunch with or something? This hospita hospitality is a lover of strangers. Not just that, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. I mean, all these things go together. You know, you don't want a guy who just loves to fight, you know, uh, brawler. We need, we need a couple of good fighters that can come be elders. That's, that's not what we're looking for, but we're looking for somebody who is gentle, who can deal with adversity and not respond by just throat punching somebody. Not quarrelsome. Again, maybe he's not physically violent, but you don't want somebody who just loves a good argument. He just loves to get into it, and he doesn't really care if he's right or not. He just wants to argue and prove that he's right. 
That doesn't make a good elder. Not a lover of money. Again, how many sad stories do we know of uh, where men who were lovers of money got into positions of leadership and tarnished the reputation of God's church because they just loved money more than they loved Christ? Humble. I'm taking humble from uh, verse 6 where he says, He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit. I love that image of puffed up. He's filled with hot air, the hot air of, of pride. And so there's a, there's a thing there of saying, you know, he needs to be tested. He needs to have some humility about him to be able to say, hey, I don't have all of this figured out. I am dependent upon Christ. And the only reason I'm here is by his grace. So there has to be a humility among the elders. Number two, not only patterns of godly behavior, but the second category, manager of his house. Listen, leadership begins in the home. And I would say to every man here that uh, you are the pastor of your home. Whether you ever occupy the office of, of elder or deacon in this church, you are the pastor of your home. You are the servant leader. And that's important, the servant leader. Not the dictator, not the king. You are the servant leader of your family. And Paul's saying that, uh, he just makes a good point of saying, hey, if you're going to have a guy who's going to come and try to lead the church, try to lead in discipleship in the church, is he caring for his family? Is he providing for his family, both physically and spiritually? Is he discipling his own children? I mean, if he can't do that, why would you think that he's going to come and do it in the church? Which brings up a great point, and that is that these qualities are not things that, you know, you step up to the plate once you're in the task, once you're in the office. So the eldership is not something where you go, hey, that guy, you know, he's semi-involved, kind of struggling a little bit. Let's make him an elder, and then maybe that'll encourage him to step up to the plate and do this thing right. No, uh, you're looking for people who are already doing these kinds of things. Because, again, what are we saying? That if a person aspires to this work, there has to be a desire for the work, and a person who's desiring this is already doing these things. They're already showing these qualities. They're showing them at home. They're showing them by serving in the church. She has to be a manager of his house. Third category, he has to be gifted to teach. We already dealt with this. This is what the elders do. It makes sense that God would have gifted them to do the primary thing they've been called to do. And that's not necessarily just standing in a pulpit on Sunday morning preaching a sermon. But the ability to teach is just to communicate clearly the truths of God's word. That can happen in a small group. It can happen uh, one-on-one over a, a meal. It can happen by a hospital bedside. It can happen anywhere. But when a, when a pastor gets up and he opens his mouth and begins to communicate the truth of God's word, is it evident that God has gifted him to do that? The fourth category, respected by outsiders. Respected by outsiders. This doesn't mean that we change what we are and what we believe and what we do to fit what the outside culture wants us to do. It means that though they may hate us for what we believe, they cannot condemn us for our lifestyle. Now, they may say, I hate everything about what that person believes and stands for. I disagree with every last tenet of their faith. But they are a good person. And I can't argue with that. I mean, they're not a scumbag. I just can't, I can't nail them to the wall on that. So this respected by outsiders is, does the man have a good testimony in his community known as a person of integrity, of responsibility, that he's a man of his word, things that even the outside world are looking for? Or does he have a reputation that he's kind of a swindler? You know, he's, he's you know, oh, I did a business deal with that guy and he completely messed me over. That's not the guy you're looking for to be an elder. Now, in this as well, uh, the reason why we won't spend a lot of time looking at the qualifications for deacons is, as you heard, they're pretty much the same. Other than that ability to teach, it's pretty much the same list of qualities because, again, 
This is just what godly biblical Christianity looks like. So we're looking for people, men who are examples of this and going to stand up and serve in these capacities. So that's what elders are. That's what elders do. And then third, why elders matter? Why elders matter? Because, again, you may be sitting and going, this, this sounds really great for somebody else to think about. You know, that's great if, if Mike and the elders want to hash this out. But why do, why do I need to know about this? Why does this matter for me? I was coming expecting something maybe a little bit different here on a Sunday morning. Well, first, consider the danger of putting the wrong people in these positions. I think a lot of us could tell stories or we know of churches or places where ungodly, unqualified people were put into these positions and terrible things happened as a result. And so if we care about Christ's church, if we care about the glory of his name in our community, then we should care about who gets to be in these positions. And I've heard it said, and I think it's absolutely true, that for the most part, a church will never rise above the spiritual temperature of its leaders. That church will never rise above the spiritual thermostat that is set by the leaders. That spiritually, the elders, the pastors, are setting the pace for the church spiritually. So if you have a group of men who don't really care about holiness, they're just kind of satisfied with mediocrity, then you're going to have a church that sort of takes on that attitude as well. And with one or two exceptions, maybe, but the whole church will tend to take on that attitude and that mindset. But if you have a church where you have a group of men who are setting that temperature hot and high, and they're saying, we're going to go after Jesus with everything within us. We're going to lead this as hard and as fast as we can and bring everybody with us. That's a completely different ballgame. That's a completely different church setup. So these leaders matter not only because of the danger, but second, consider the benefits of having godly leadership in a church. Again, I've already said it, but if you care about your joy at all, you should care about who gets to be in these positions of leadership. And there are two big reasons, two big benefits that having godly leadership does in a church. It's strength and success. Here in a couple of verses, what Pastor Mike's going to deal with next week is uh, Paul calls the church the pillar and the buttress or the support of the truth. Let me ask you a question. Do you want weak pillars or do you want strong pillars? Do you want flimsy, dry-rotted pillars that the least little breeze is going to break that thing in half and the whole thing come tumbling down? Or do you want solid, firm pillars that can stand when a hurricane comes against it? Well, if you want a strong church, you need strong leadership. You need godly men who are at the helm leading this thing under the authority of this book. And you can just imagine why this would be the case. And the reason is, if I were to ask you what builds a church... If we were to just take a poll throughout this congregation and say, what builds a church? We might get some different answers. So I'm not actually going to do it. <laughs> we might get a whole bunch of different answers. Some people might say, well, you've got to have you know, spectacular uh, music. you have lights and lasers and all that stuff. You've got to really bring people in with that. And, and other people may say, we've got to have good programs. You've got to have good, uh, good program things that get people in and get people plugged in and involved in different groups that meet their kind of felt needs. You can have all sorts of different, you can have really good facilities, you can have this thing, you can have that thing. You might have all kinds of answers. But what God says is that his word builds the church. He builds the church through his word. His word being taught, his word being proclaimed, his word being believed and obeyed. And he does that by his spirit. And so if you want a church that is strong, you need leaders, you need shepherds who are given to this book, 
who are given to teaching this book, who are given to, with everything they have, getting you to love it, to learn it, to obey it, to treasure it, and to see the glory of the God who inspired it. And that will build up a church, and that will strengthen a church. But not just the strength, but also the success of a church. And when I say success, do not define success the way the world defines success. I'm not talking about having the biggest building around. I'm not talking about having the most people, the biggest budgets. That's not success in God's eyes. God's scorecard is faithfulness. Faithfulness to the mission that he's given to make disciples of all nations. And if you have a group of men who are white, hot, passionate about obeying the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, that's going to bleed into the people. That's going to pour over into the other people, and they'll say, you know, we want to get on board of that as well. We see that in God's Word. We see that that's to be the heartbeat of our mission, and so we're going to be planting churches and making disciples and sending out missionaries, and that's what we're going to be about, and that will be a church that is successful, whether they ever run more than 50 whether they ever take up a huge offering that gets put in a Baptist newspaper or not, in God's eyes, that's a successful church. And at the end of all things, isn't that what matters? 200 years ago, will it matter if the world thought we were a successful church or will it matter if God thinks we're a successful church? In light of eternity, I want to be a church where God says, those are my people. They obey me. They love me. They want to do what I tell them to do. They want to serve me I'm going to pour out my blessings on that church. So if we want to be a church that's in that position to receive from God what he has, godly leadership must be in place. It's so important. It's so vital. There may be some of you here, and I would uh, say there's just different levels of how we can take this sermon. Uh, One is if you're an elder, if you're an elder here, to examine yourself by by these categories, by these qualifications. Second, if you're, if you're a man here and you aspire to this office, if you'd have a desire for this work, I would say with Paul, you desire a noble thing. It's a good work that you desire. And let me just ask you, how do you measure up against these qualifications? And is it the work that you desire or is it the position? Are you after the authority or are you after the work? Because it is the work that God is calling you to, if he's calling you to it. And if you say, I don't meet these qualifications, well, none of us naturally do. None of us by our own ability can meet these qualifications. And so elders must be men who are first and foremost given to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not, uh, please don't take verse 1 through 13 of 1 Timothy 3 out of the context of the whole book. The whole context of 1 Timothy is about how the gospel governs the behavior and the actions and the structure of a church. This isn't a moralistic list of to-dos for the leaders of a church or you know, some kind of litmus test to say, well, you know, if you can make yourself good enough, then you get to be in. But if not, you're on the outside. These things are gifts of God's grace. And I would say that based on the fact that two of these, at least, uh, self-control and gentleness, they're part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Being fruit of the Spirit means that God brings them about. They're not the fruit of man's will or exertion. They're the fruit of the Spirit. It's things he brings about in you. And so if you look at yourself and say, I don't meet this list of qualifications, the first thing you need to do is fall on your face and say, God, I repent of that, that I am quarrelsome, that I'm I'm not gentle. God, would you change my heart and would you bring about these things in me? Because it's not about legalism. it's It's about having a heart that's been transformed by the grace of God. And if we want to be a church that's centered on the grace of God, we have to have leaders who are centered on the grace of God. If we want to be a cross-centered church, as we talked about uh, a couple months ago, then that means all the elders in the future, all the deacons, need to be men who are centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And so it may be that you need to pray and say, Lord, I'm not meeting these qualifications, but by your grace, would you help me? Would you bring these things about in me? And these aren't just for men, although the offices may be for men. If you're a woman here, there's nothing in this list that, not quarrelsome, not violent but gentle, self-controlled, those are things, like we said, for all Christians of all places. And I would invite the, the ladies as well, for the women here, if you would say, look at yourself and are you the kind of woman that could be the wife of an elder or a deacon? I think that's important because, to be honest, there are lots of men out there who have aspired to these offices and have been disqualified because they have a wife who doesn't meet these qualifications. And so look at your own heart and say, am I living according to these qualifications? Am I the type of wife, am I the type of woman that could be supporting and working alongside and ministering alongside an elder or a deacon as a husband? And for all of us, are we submitted to this gospel? Are we, are we in a position where we would say, Lord, I'm ready to obey you? What you have put in your church for our joy, for our growth in godliness, for our everlasting pleasure and delight, am I willing to put myself under that leadership? And I would say, and I want to make this our prayer, and I want to do this for us here in just a moment, that all of us would commit to praying that God would raise up more of these qualified men, more qualified elders, more qualified deacons, and that God would expand the ministry of this church through raising up godly leaders. That begins as a prayer in the hearts of every single person in this church to say we care about godly leadership. We're praying that God would do it, that by his grace he would raise them up and establish them in these positions. Not so that our church would be great, not so that Mercy Hill's name would go out, but so that the name and the glory of Jesus would be spread all over this planet. So let's pray together to that end.